Thank you very much for your worship. You may be seated. I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Caleb started this off in this chapter last week, and we're talking about uh, some of the parables of Jesus, and we're parking here for a couple weeks in the life of Jesus and talking about parables. And uh, a parable is literally something that is thrown alongside. That's what the word means. Para means alongside, bole, uh, the Greek word means to set or to throw something. And so what Jesus does with a parable is he literally throws out a story to set it alongside of a truth that he's trying to explain to us. And so in Matthew chapter 13, here we are with two uh, parables, the parable of the treasure and the parable of the pearl. It's on the screen for you if you don't have a Bible. And would you mind with all your gusto reading it along with me? Okay, here we go. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The kingdom of heaven is Matthew's way of saying it. Other gospel writers will use the kingdom of God. But let's define that little phrase, the kingdom of heaven. What is it? And let's keep it simple. Let's let's make it be this today. And I know that there are some uh, other aspects of what the kingdom of God is. But for our purposes today, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is when God is the king of your heart and rules your life. That's what the kingdom of heaven is. And that's what Jesus invites us to. All of chapter 13 is about the kingdom of heaven. And he throws out all of these stories to explain what the kingdom of heaven is and why we need to be a part of it. And so Jesus takes the time to explain it and describe it and help us to understand the kingdom of heaven because it's not really like the kingdoms that we're used to. First, from these stories, we understand the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that is hidden. It's hidden. That's odd. And I don't really have time to explore this hiddenness of the kingdom, but it is hidden. We're told a man came and he found hidden treasure in a field. And you might think that's kind of unusual, but it really wasn't. In that day and age, it was rare, obviously, but it was not unheard of. Uh, When somebody had wealth in the first century, what they did with it Uh, was not go and put it in a bank. That wasn't on their radar. They didn't use money like we use it as a commodity, right? It was merely an, uh, an item of exchange, a method of exchange. This for that. And if you had capital, if you had some wealth... Uh, the last thing on your radar would be to go to a bank and, and put it in a bank and, and uh, get interest off of it. And so if you were a wealthy person, you had some treasure, you hid it. You hid it. And maybe you found a place under your mattress, maybe somewhere in your basement, maybe in the attic, or most likely you went out into your property, into your field, and you dug a hole, and you put your treasure in the hole, and you hid it. And because of the nature of hiding things, you don't tell anyone, right? That's kind of the point. Then life happens. And maybe an accident happens and somebody dies. Or maybe a war happens and maybe somebody invades. Maybe political upheavals take place. And for one reason or another, this treasure that was once known by one person is all of a sudden forgotten about and it is left. 
And it wasn't unusual for a hidden treasure to be forgotten. And Jesus says that's the way the kingdom is. It's hidden. But that doesn't mean it's lost. It just means that it's waiting to be found. And here's what it says. A man found it. A man found it. A man shows up. He's maybe a laborer. Maybe he's a hired worker. Uh, and he is working for a boss of some sort, maybe, and he's doing his normal thing that he does every day. And all of a sudden he stubs his big toe and he trips and he falls down. He looks back and all of a sudden he sees a corner of something and he uncovers it. Lo and behold, it's a treasure. Untold wealth. And so here's what the text says that he does. He covers it up. Maybe there's other people around. Maybe his boss is going to come in and check on him. Maybe he's quick enough to think maybe the owner of the field doesn't know about this. And so let me cover it up and I'll make a plan. And see what his plan is. His plan is that he goes and he sells everything he has and he buys that field. He impoverishes himself. He sells all of his other stuff in order to get that field that contains that treasure because he knew there was more in the field, right? He knew there was more in the field than all the stuff he was getting rid of. He knew there was more in the field than he was going to have to pay for the property. And so the text says he did, he does this with joy. He goes and he sells and he buys that field. He sells all of his stuff and there's not a hint of reluctance. There's not a hint of uh, misery or begrudgery or anything like that. It is with joy. There's another word that we could put in there. It's anticipation. Anticipation. He was willing to forego all of this because he knew what was coming down the road. Are you with me? The second illustration is like it. It's a merchant looking for pearls. And this merchant is searching. And he finds a pearl unlike any pearl that he has ever seen. Pearls in the first century were almost on, plane, on the plane with gold. Sometimes they were even more expensive than gold. Um, there is, it is told of uh, Cleopatra. Cleopatra had one pearl that if you valued it in today's dollars would have been worth $4 billion, That's with a B. $4 billion. One pearl. And Jesus says, this guy goes and he finds the pearl that surpasses all pearls. And you kind of get the same sense. The word joy isn't used in this second parable, but you absolutely assume that he's joyful. He's excited. He's surprised at his find. And so he bargains with the owner of the pearl and he he makes a plan as well. And he goes and he liquidates all of his businesses. He gives up all of his other inventory. Maybe he had a lot of other pearls. Maybe he dealt in other things. He gives it all up. He sells all of his land. He sells all of his capital. He His home, uh, his TV, his couch, his baseball cards that he's had since he was a seventh grader and his Rolling Stones album. He throws it all in and says, that's worth more to me. And he does it. With joy. And with joy, both of these men sell everything to get the treasure, to get the pearl, because they know that what they're getting is so much more than what they're giving up. And even though they're giving up everything, it's nothing compared to what they're going to get. 
And this is how a Christian is supposed to function. You get that by now, right? With joy, with anticipation. When stuff in your life is being liquidated and sold off and disappearing, we, of all people, are able to look around at our stuff and the things that are going on in our life and to say, this isn't worth much. I know what's worth more. There's more in the field. The treasure is in the field. That's one point that Jesus wants to get across. We have treasure that other people can't see. So that's the point. A couple, uh, three or four things about these parables. Number one, the point is not business ethics. That's not the point that Jesus is making. There are a lot of people that want to look at these stories and they want to criticize the man in the field. They want to say, oh, what an underhanded thing to do to bury it back and not tell anybody about it and then scrape up money and buy the field. And they get into a legal discussion about whether that was ethical or not. And I want to tell you, don't get hung up there. That's not the point that Jesus is making. Even if it was, I could point you to some Jewish law that basically said finders keepers. And I could also point you to the fact that this guy didn't just take the treasure. He did everything in his power to make sure that he was laying a rightful claim to the treasure. But again, that's not the point. The point is not business ethics, so don't get hung up there, okay? Number two, the point is not about meriting salvation, but about receiving salvation. This is very important that you, that you hear and understand. As a, as a person who is studying a text and trying to uh, teach it, to people, especially in the Midwest, in the Bible Belt, there is a really strong temptation to preach this parable this way and to come before you today. And if I did, none of you would blink. You would say, hey, that was a great sermon. And you would go on your way out the doors. If I preached it this way, here's what you need to do, people. You need to go outside these doors and you need to live the life that good Christians are supposed to live. And you need to do all of those things so that you can have the kingdom of heaven so that you can get into the kingdom of heaven. And if I preached that sermon, you would agree. Nobody would say a thing and you'd go out and it would be absolutely wrong. A couple problems. Number one, it would only submit you in your own kingdom that you're living in already. There are a couple kingdoms out here that are going on. One kingdom, some of you, after I preached a sermon like that, would say, oh, you'd puff up your chest. Ah, I've done some pretty good things. I'm in. Cool. And you'd go out whistling. No problem. I'm in the kingdom. Because you've been able to succeed at three or four or five or six things that are really important in our Christian community, and you haven't messed up in those areas, and so you think, I'm good enough. God will let me in. All right? Then there's other parts of this crowd that are in the exact opposite boat. And if I preached a sermon like that, you would say to yourself, there's no way. I can't do that. I can't walk. I've tried. I've tried to walk out these doors and I've tried to live that good life. I've tried to do all of those things that you're supposed to do if you're a Christian. And I can't do it. I keep failing. And so those of you who are in that boat would go away from this sermon crushed and frustrated. By the way, 
those are usually the people who come for a few weeks, but they don't really get the gospel, and so they don't come anymore. And years down the road, when you say, hey, have you ever found Jesus? They'll say, oh, I tried that once. I tried that once. You can't try Christianity. That's not the way it works. Here's the other problem. The rest of the Bible, right? You can't take this parable by itself. We have to take the teaching of the rest of the New Testament and apply it with, and, and take what we know there and apply it here. And what we know in the rest of the New Testament is salvation is free. You don't earn it. You can't earn it. You can't be good enough to earn it. It's absolutely free. And so the point here that Jesus is making is that we need to do whatever it takes to receive the kingdom in our, into our life, to adopt its ways, to subjugate ourselves to its king, to live under God's rule and make him king of our hearts. And if it takes selling all of the earthly stuff that tie you down to be able to move into that heavenly kingdom, so be it. It's worth it. There's more in the field. And so Jesus isn't talking about earning anything here. What he's talking about is accepting the thing that has already been earned for you by his sacrifice on the cross. I put it this way. You can write this down. Total commitment is the way the kingdom is received, but the way it's earned is by the action of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that should help both of you in both camps. If you're a little prideful, you need to understand that none of your righteous works matter. And if you're a little frustrated and crushed in your Christianity, you need to understand that you are totally loved and totally accepted because of what Christ has done. Got it? Okay. Number three. I want you to know what the difference is in the two parables. Uh, there's a man in the field and there's a merchant that buys a pearl. And the man in the field is a wage earner. He's an average Joe. He's kind of a working stiff. And the merchant is exactly the opposite. He is something. He's a success. He's a high roller. He's a wheeler dealer. He has resources and he's connected, right? The man in the field doesn't own any property. He doesn't really own anything. But the merchant, <clears throat> we get the idea, owns at least a business, if not multiple businesses. And he has inventory and he has capital and he has resources. The man in the field is going about his business. Ho-hum. No big deal. I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do today. And accidentally stubs his toe and falls over this treasure and finds this thing buried in the ground. Totally by chance. But the merchant is on a search. He's looking for something. And commentators will look at the differences between these, these men and they will say, you know, the man in the field is like an apathetic atheist. Somebody who's going along doesn't think God exists at all and then all of a sudden something happens in their lives and they trip over Jesus and they find him. But the merchant is like a spiritual seeker. A spiritual seeker who has tried everything else, tried this and that and nothing satisfied and all of a sudden they find Jesus and finally, aha, they found what they were looking for. People come from all kinds of different backgrounds and perspectives. Are you somebody that found Jesus by accident? Or are you somebody who found Jesus because of search? Which one are you? How did you find the kingdom? Number four, those are the differences. But number four, note what's the same. The one thing 
that's the same about both of these men. The man in the field sold everything. The merchant who was buying the pearl sold everything. That's the one thing that is common between these two stories. They both sold everything. The man sells in the normal word is used for sell. But when we get to the merchant, the word for sell is a little different. The word for sell literally has overtones of slavery. And what it means is it it was the, it was the word that was used when somebody was sold into slavery. And so what this guy is literally doing is he's taking all of his capital, all of his businesses, all of his land, all of his clout, and he is enslaving it to somebody else. He's betting the farm. In other words, he's saying, if this pearl thing doesn't work out, I'm done. Both sold everything they had. And for the man in the field, all looked a little different than the all that the merchant gave. But it was still everything. Everything is relative. Let me press this selling a little further and give you even the process that they used to sell. What is the, uh, what does the text say? Throw the text back up there. I'm sorry. Uh, in the man, the man says, then in his joy, his procedure was this. He goes, he sells, and he buys that field. Look at the merchant. What was his procedure for uh, his plan? He went and he sold and he bought. And that's the plan. You can throw that other slide up there, Sandy. Go, sell, buy. And that's the process that every one of us uses when we treasure something, when we value something. That, those are the steps we go through every time. doesn't matter what you value. Your values, your treasures always direct and dictate your actions and what you will deny yourself and what you will acquire. And what we treasure always causes us to go and to buy and to sell. You have a friend that you love and it's their birthday and you value this friend, you treasure this friend, what do you do? You go. You go to Walmart. You go to the mall. You go online. And you sell. You take some money that you would have spent other places, maybe for some uh, Rolling Stones albums or something like that, okay? And you sacrifice that money, and you acquire something for your friend because you value your friend. All of your values... Follow this process. You go and you buy and you sell and you buy because of what you treasure. Another way to say it is what you worship, what you worship. The reason that we can always go and sell and buy and transfer physical wealth with outward action so easily, the reason that we can always reach for our wallet very easily, if it's of our own volition, okay, if it's a normal circumstance, The reason we easily make that transaction is because long before we make that physical transaction, we have made an inner transaction in our heart. And we have transferred emotional wealth long before we transfer physical wealth. Let me give you an example. Uh, A couple years ago, I took my daughter to buy a car. Okay. Now, my emotional treasure is in her, right? And so when we pull up to this certain car lot and she sees this certain car and it's the right color and it's the right shape and, you know, it has the right stereo, (laughs) okay, she wants this car 
What do I do? Well, my emotional treasure is in her. And so all reason and faculties just fly out the window. I'm not concerned really about what does the engine sound like and how's the gas mileage and is this going to even hold air in the tires and will it last more than 10 miles? All of a sudden that, because my emotional wealth is in her, not in any car. And she wants this car. And so long before there was a bargain, long before there was a check that was written, I had already bought that car. Let me tell you, that's the worst possible way to buy a car. I, in fact, I told her, I said, I'm never doing that again. I'm never taking you. And this last time I didn't got a much better deal. It was was very good. Okay. But that's what we do. We make decisions based on what we value. And here's the question. What do you treasure? What do you treasure? On what basis do you go and sell and buy in your life? More importantly, what do you treasure the most? What do you treasure the most? If somebody peered into all of your going and selling and buying, what would they conclude? What is your deepest, most cherished treasure? Is it your life? Is it your spouse? Is it your child? Is it your home? Is it your accomplishments? Is it your wealth? Is it your Rolling Stones albums? I don't know. It's something. Here's a test. If you don't know what your treasure is, and this is your assignment for this next week, ask yourself over and over this question. Here it is. I'll I'll phrase it a couple different ways. Ask yourself this. What is it that if I should lose it, it would mean I would just about rather throw myself off of a bridge than do anything else? Here's another way to say it. What is it that if I lost it, it would be my greatest nightmare? The answer to that question is what you treasure. It's what you treasure. Now, both the man and the merchant took that test. And the man looked around at all of his stuff, and he says, what I treasure the most is that thing in the field that I uncovered. And I'm willing to sacrifice everything for that stuff in the field. And the merchant took this test, and he said, it would be the greatest tragedy of my life if I didn't sell everything else and buy that pearl. Both of these men took the test. And they both sell lesser prizes to obtain the ultimate prize. And here's Jesus' main point in this parable. The thing you cannot live without is the kingdom. The thing you cannot live without is Jesus. And you have to realize what it means to enter and receive the kingdom of God. It's to say, to look around at all the stuff in your life and to say, I am willing to sell everything for Jesus. And you look at anything in your life and you say, nothing is more important than Jesus to me. If it's a choice between that and Jesus, I choose Jesus. If it's a choice between that and Jesus, I choose Jesus. I will suffer the loss of anything to keep Jesus. And when you understand that the kingdom outweighs everything else, you will with pleasure, that's the key part, with pleasure, part with anything. To get it. To get it. It's utterly important that you recognize the value of the kingdom in your life because when you do, it will change the entire rest of your life. It will change the way that you operate in your life when you realize the wealth of the kingdom that you have in front of you. 
over the years, there have been a lot of times that I've been with people and they've been contemplating uh, becoming a Christian, following Jesus, and they will, they will say this. This common, and you've probably, maybe you've said this yourself. You mean if I become a Christian, I have to start doing this and that? Anybody heard that? Yeah. You mean if I become a Christian, I have to stop doing that and that? And the implication is, I kind of like doing that and that. Do I really have to? What's the deal there? Let me give you an example from everyday life. Let's say you have uh, a single guy, and he is the typical single guy. He's living with his mom. He's playing PlayStation 56 hours out of the week, and he's watching football all afternoon, sitting on the couch, eating Cheetos. He doesn't have a job. And he comes to you who are married, right? And he says something stupid like this. Uh, when I get married, will I still be able to sit on the couch with Cheetos and watch football all weekend, play PlayStation? And your answer is, probably not, bro. If you really want to keep the peace, probably, that's probably not the way it's going to work, right? No smart person approaches marriage that way. Why? Nobody goes up and says, hey, when I get married, can I still date other women? Is that a big big deal? (laughs) No, it's a ridiculous question because if you're asking that question, number one, you don't have any prospects, okay? Uh, Number two, even if you do have somebody in your life, you don't care about them. You don't love them because if you really love them, you wouldn't be asking that question. Marriage is about a person, not about rules. There are rules in marriage, are there not? Absolutely. But why do we keep those rules? Because of a person. Because I love him. Because I love her. That's why I do this. And as Christians, it's the same way. We have to figure out the treasure that Jesus is. And if your response to the kingdom is, do I really have to do that? Or do I have to stop doing that? Then it's just clear that you don't yet know who Jesus is. And that's okay. But can I encourage you, get to know who Jesus is. And when you understand the treasure that is in front of you, all of a sudden, this universe that you had that used to revolve around you and your decisions and your wills and your choices and your desires, all of a sudden, it will start to orbit around somebody else. It will start to orbit around the new king. And the new king has lots of different things planned for you, and you will do them gladly. You will with pleasure change anything about your life when you realize how valuable this king is and what he has done for you. The kingdom is about a person. There are other commentators that look at these stories, and they, um, they interpret it differently. And I have to mention it to you because there are enough of them out there that, uh, you know, I can't just let it go. They will say, no, this isn't Jesus just throwing out a story about how we should, you know, act and behave and how we should treasure anything. This is Jesus telling a story about himself. That's what they'll say. This is Jesus inserting himself into a parable. And do you realize what happens 
if we insert Jesus, if Jesus is the man, then he goes and sells everything in order to buy a treasure. Who's the treasure? We are. If Jesus is the merchant, then he sells everything. He leaves it all to go to a cross to buy a pearl. And the pearl is us, the church. Now, I will leave it to your homiletical and uh, hermeneutical skills as to whether you're going to believe that interpretation or not. But here's what I know. I know everything that I just said is absolutely true. And I can point to other scriptures in the New Testament to say that say that exact same thing. He did sell everything. He had glory with God that was uncomparable. That's what John 15, 5 says. But Philippians 2 says he left it all. He emptied himself. He sold it all to come to the earth. And he did it in joy. Hebrews 12, 2 says he went to that cross with joy. With the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Why did he leave it all? Why did he sell it all and climb up on that cross? Galatians 3.13, because we are his treasure. Galatians 3.26, we are sons and daughters of God through faith. And he goes, Jesus goes, and he sells, and he buys, because we are his treasure. And I mention this to drive home the kind of king that you have. Do you really know the kind of king that you're dealing with here? The king who has given everything for you. The king that has inverted the kingdom. Says, I will be your servant so every one of you can be sons and daughters of God. And when you understand this kind of king, you will gladly give up everything for him. If we learned anything from the movie The Lion King... (laughs) What we learned is that the world is in harmony and the world is at peace when the right king is on the throne. And Matthew chapter 13 is about Jesus inviting you into his kingdom where he is the king on his throne. And to do so, it will cost you everything. But when you realize the value of the kingdom you'll realize that although you're selling everything, everything becomes nothing because of what you have in front of you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this treasure that we have in Christ. That because he is the right king on the right throne, that our world filled with life. Father, would you help us to uncover that treasure? Would you help us to dig beneath the surface, to get at that thing, that prize that Jesus is offering us? Father, most of all, would you help us to understand who Jesus is? Would you help us to fall in love with him? Because when we do, Everything will take care of itself. We'll know what we should do and what we shouldn't do because we love a person. And that person will be the center of our universe. Father, if there's somebody here that's never found the treasure, 
never bought the pearl, would you help them to understand that it is worth it to sell everything in this earthly kingdom so that they can move into that heavenly one? Would you impress that on their heart? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you stand? I said at the beginning that the kingdom of heaven is this, when God is the king of your heart and rules your life. And we learned from the text that we just read that the kingdom is also treasure that is worth selling everything for. And if you put those two together, here's what you come up with. The greatest treasure, the greatest blessing in life that you could ever give yourself is to make God the king of your heart and the ruler of your life. We're going to give you a chance to do that. If you have a decision, you come. Can we sing?